Hello everyone and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Obviously today there is no guest. Instead it is my very long time coming episode of the quote best film scores of 2022. And as always when I use best for these types of lists, recaps, roundups, whatever you want to call it, I mean really favorite. And let's be real, anytime someone does that, they always mean favorite, even if they don't say it, even if they don't realize it. Because for an art, it's impossible to say what, quote, best is. I don't know what the best film score of last year was. Nobody knows. And sure as hell, a lot of people will disagree that All Quiet on the Western Front was the winner of the BAFTA and the Academy Award for best score. I won't get into that discussion, but it certainly paints the picture. Now I'll do a, a recap of 10, or a list of 10. Candidly, there are 20 or 30 that could have made it in here. I hit 10 and cut it off. It's too difficult and it really begs meddling from the creator to continually tweak these types of lists. And really, it's all arbitrary anyways. I made this list probably a month ago and just haven't gotten around to recording. As of today, maybe it's a completely different one. Maybe half of them would be switched out with something else. But I'm not gonna spend too much time and too much thought seeing what it looks like now or what it might look like in five minutes or five months. The list is here, and that's what it is. One note, though. A score that didn't make it, but that I really liked, was Alex G's score for We're All Going to the World's Fair. It's possibly my favorite score release of 2022. I just love it. And you've probably heard or seen me talk about it before. It really creates this unsettling yet familiar, at least for my age, sort of lo-fi indie acoustic feeling. And there's something comforting to it, but also really disconcerting. And it's bookmarked by two, I think by two vocal tracks, both excellent, and they're used in the film, but the reason that it doesn't make this list is the bulk of the score in the film is very ambient, very tonal. I like it, it does a really good job, and I did a review of it several months ago at this point, geez, but it simply isn't my favorite. However, score release on its own, excellent. It's an incredible example of crafting a score release. Number one on the list is Blonde by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. And first, this is in no order whatsoever. Probably the order of me listing the scores and chucking them into the top ten. So when I say number one, does not mean it's my favorite, although with Blonde that might be the case. This is a score that, frustratingly, really didn't end up on any or many top 10 lists that I saw. No real awards consideration, minimal critics' choice, etc. And maybe part of it is the baggage of the film itself. It features a lot of graphic depictions of violence, sexual violence, and other just unsettling imagery. And it drew a very, very divisive vocal hostile split, very controversial, and I think that affected people's perceptions or memories of the score. And it's really unfair. 
I mean, this is a truly, truly brilliant piece. It creates this and mimics the duality of Norma Jean and Marilyn Monroe. At times, it exists and inhabits this sort of spacey world in the stars where anything's possible, where you look into the distance, into unimaginable, imperceptible voids and wonder what's out there. And that imagination of what could be in the cosmos also mirrors what could be in your life. It is a world of possibility, and one that, at least from the perspective of the music, is positive possibility of creating your life in any way that you want, finding, in Norma Jean's case, her family, her father. But there's the flip side, the deepest reaches of the interiority of addressing what is going on, and this is where it gets into the more graphic nature. There's also a nightmare world of it, a living hell that, while Norma Jean may at times forget or not realize is happening, at least in the moment, or afterwards when she's in the dream state, the viewer, the listener, never forgets. It's punishing, it's unsettling, and it flits between these two in a really organic, seamless way. It's one of those that works brilliantly to picture. There's a lot of subtle, almost Mickey-mousing elements that are easy to miss, and also times where it sort of floats and encompasses you. Next up is The Batman by Michael Giacchino. For many film score fans, this is probably the biggest award snub of last year, which in some ways is actually quite frustrating. It is a, a very popular score. I mean, you take a look at any listening stats, hugely popular, but it's a populism that's well-earned. I mean, it's a great film, but also a great score. It's a very cool sort of orchestral hybrid score, very strong main theme. Some people will complain about it because I think it's a two-three-note theme for Batman that kind of got derided at some points for being too similar to John Williams' Imperial March theme. I think that is maybe a little overboard. In my mind, although they don't sound similar, there's a similar feeling between that and Brad Fidel's main theme for Terminator. And it's because it, it creates this relentless, ever-present sound. And it's something that Giacomo does in a very simple way, and yet it's utterly effective. And while some of this complaint, I never found it to be too redundant, too repetitive... Maybe that's in part, you know, an interest that I have in that type of music in general, of repetition, over-repetition. Giacchino keeps it interesting by having this, the music, the palette, around that march, that main theme, always changing. And it creates a lot of depth surrounding it. There's also several other themes, too. The Bruce Wayne motif, a Riddler theme based in part on Schubert's Ave Maria, and a Catwoman theme that doubles as a love theme. It's nice hearing composers do not just orchestral music, but put in love themes. We don't get enough of those. He had a few other big scores last year, Thor Love and Thunder and Lightyear, but the Batman, head and shoulders above either of those, really one of his better works in a while. Next up, technically a 2021 film, 
but had a 2022 score release. When something straddles the line like that, if it's good enough, I ignore it. And look, this is my list. I make the rules. I'm including The Harder They Fall by James Samuel. And if I hadn't included it here, probably would have done uh, for 2021 instead. This is one of the most refreshing scores I've heard in a while. There will be some aspects of it that I'll probably repeat, maybe not verbatim, but very close, in a score I talk about in a little bit. Stay on the edge of your seat for that, although you might be able to figure it out. Samuel starts with some elements that we'd expect in a typical Western score, and then turns it on its head with folk, field-holler-type songs, hip-hop, and more. From a distance, a really weird, unexpected combination that you think, eh, no way this can work. But then you listen, and you watch, and does. It's electrifying. And what's really cool about it is it becomes, and it is a very distinctly black American score in a genre of film and of music that is really almost completely erased the black existence from its setting. This is a, a 19th century western at a time when, in reality, there were many black cowboys. And yet, when you watch westerns throughout most of history, they don't exist. It's powerful that Samuel puts this in. He reinserts this identity and this existence that had been scrubbed for so long. It's similar to how Bob Dylan and Neil Young injected some, at the time, more modern music into the Western decades ago with, respectively, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid and Dead Man. Samuel does the same. And, yes, yeah, some people might say, oh, interesting for interesting's sake is not enough. I agree. This is not it. It's just a, a really exciting, unexpected, and effective and fun to listen to combination. Brilliant stuff. Next up is Howard Shore's score for Crimes of the Future. Even, I think, among film score fans, the thing that people know Howard Shore most for, obviously, Lord of the Rings and, to a lesser extent, The Hobbit. Of course, The Hobbit reuses a lot of Lord of the Rings themes as well, probably in part because of the time crunch. But Shore has this other side, and it's him just being weird as hell. And in large part, I'd say, because prior to this, he had 17 collaborations with David Cronenberg, one of the preeminent weird directors of modern cinema. And so, of course, if you were doing music for body horror, for the strange, for the unsettling, not all of Cronenberg's films are like that. Eastern Promises, not at all. A much more traditional monothematic score from Shore for that, piano-driven. But when you're doing music for the weird, chances are you're going to do the weird as well. And that's what a lot of Shore's scores have been with Cronenberg, and that's what Crimes of the Future is too. And it's great that Howard Shore gets to be weird again. The film takes place sometime in the relatively near future. I don't think it's specified when. For a film that's a, a dystopic sci-fi the obvious choice is to have something be very synthy. Obvious, obvious, obvious. Shore has synth electronic elements, but there's also an organic side to it too. And probably intentionally, 
it reflects the main conflict of the film of humanity battling with itself of what is human as the artificial overtakes and invades people's bodies so too does shore's score there are organic and artificial elements all throughout and he really leans into creating sort of a not quite nightmare but a bleak dark uninhabitable environment one of the most exciting aspects of it as well is and i don't want to come off as an ageist but and especially with the orchestral reputation that shore has he also does some really cool standalone tracks and these are for some of the art exhibits that we see in the film the main one clinic or as viewers and fans call him the ear man that track is a really dark near future pounding underground edm song it's really good and when i heard the score watch the film i assumed that it was either licensed or by someone else nope howard shore if he's listening if someone knows him recommend that howard shore for the hell of it does an ep of dance tracks dark edm dark electronics something like that because it's so cool it's a side of him that even in his other cronenberg collaborations hasn't come out it's killer now if you couldn't figure it out the score i was referencing when talking about james samuel's score for the heart of they fall is nope by michael abels similar to samuel abels mixes a lot of genres here in doing so it becomes the certainly the biggest collaboration between Abel's and director Jordan Peele. It's their third collaboration. I'd say at least from my my opinion, certainly the best score from Abel's, at least in these collaborations, the biggest, the most ambitious, sometimes as in this case, bigger is better. Again, there are more typical western sounds, I'd say more spaghetti western type sounds than there are sci-fi elements horror elements and they're a little more in the background in the film because they're amidst the action the ongoings but these really hokey 50s style cheesy kitschy cowboy theme tunes and theme songs as well that when you hear it you go man that has got to be a licensed track nope michael abel's it's a wild mastery of these very very different genres and styles it's really impressive and i think this is abel's giving the opportunity to flex his skill his breadth the most that i can recall he had a score in what, 2020 2021 for the life of me i can't remember the name hbo with hugh jackman that gave abel's the opportunity to do a lot of more classical styled music choral music a bit like a catholic religious feeling i'm waiting for him to have the chance to do something like that again this is abel's doing basically everything else and the guy is a skilled freaking machine also a third collaboration men by jeff barrow and ben salisbury as with their other collaborations it's a freaking weird score weird film love it love it love it what's cool about it is one of the things at least is how well it shows the use of silence 
I think in the first 20 minutes, there is no or minimal score. What it does is it, it lets us fall into a lull of thinking that things are safe, thinking that things are okay. Once their music starts coming in, it reassures us of that. You get this faux organ coming in, giving a bit of a English Anglican comfort that things are alright, this is a safe place, a safe space. And then afterwards, shortly thereafter, you get humming or vocalization from the main character. She's singing these notes into a tunnel and it echoes back and the notes start building on each other in a more complex tapestry. And when she's doing it, you can obviously see it's, it's eliciting a lot of joy and it does so in the viewer and the listener as well. And then, unsurprisingly, things fall apart. And the duo mixes these vocalizations, which kind of return in themes or motifs not overused, fortunately, and drones and pastoral undertones that feel like the ghosts of the English countryside are coming out, coming to life, haunting the main character, haunting the viewer. It really plays with sounds, feelings that we might otherwise find friendly, comforting, familiar, and makes them frightening. Another horror score is Bones and All by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. I'll probably get some flack for including a score from them on this, but this is one of those scores that I think if you're predisposed, if you're the right person, it hits at a very deep emotional level. In one sense, and this is just from the way it made me feel, it reminds me of the score for Drive My Car. That was a score where at one point I listened to it and it gave me this really deep wave of melancholy, of, of sadness, and yet of the idea that things would be okay. Bones and all in some sense is similar. There are a lot of moments, especially later on, where you get a track that has Reznor singing over top. It's really heartbreaking. It elicits this feeling of being in, in paradise in the, the best moment of your life and knowing very, very soon, in seconds, minutes, moments, it's all going to go away and you'll never get that again. There's a nostalgia there, I think, for me, at least, of reminiscence of creating a fabricated regret. It's really powerful. And it's also interesting because the palette is very different from them. There are some of the typical sounds. There are moments where it, it reminds you of older Nine Inch Nails songs, like A Warm Place from the album Downward Spiral. But the palette's also really acoustic, and I'm sure that Reznor or Nine Inch Nails have had some more acoustic tracks. I'm not the biggest expert on his discography, but at least from the film scoring, media scoring perspective, it is really different. I don't think we've ever had acoustic stuff from their releases before. It makes you do a double take of going, oh, isn't this them? It is. And it's exciting to hear them doing something a little different. The next score is Kimmy by Cliff Martinez. Now, Kimmy sees longtime collaborators Cliff Martinez and Steven Soderbergh finally reunite. I think it's been like a seven-year absence. And 
similar to Howard Shore's score for Crimes of the Future, Martinez takes an unexpected, slightly surprising route on this sound palette. The film itself is billed as a techno-thriller, really a thriller that focuses on the issues of technology, evident in the name, right? And so the obvious take, again, is something that's very electronic-focused. That's not what he does. There are complementary aspects of the score that are electronic, but a lot of it kind of falls into two camps. Some of it is sort of a, a Hermanesque style. The other part is some that you hear in scores like Solaris from Martinez that have the, the goblin, the marimba, that create this sort of unexpected, almost dreamlike feeling. So there's a weird mixture of sound, and sometimes it's really tense, pulsing, pushing. The tension builds and builds and builds, and other times Martinez seemingly works against picture and puts the viewer, the listener, into almost a daze. One great aspect of it as well is the length. So some of the thematic elements are a little repetitive, not quite on, at least in my view, on the realm of being too much, but the score's like 27 minutes, sub-30 at the very least, and so it doesn't overstay its welcome. And it's also one of those rare scores that, at least for me, I can put on and then listen to three times. It's actually something that I've done for Martinez's Solara score. I've listened to that who knows how many. I used to just put it on a repeat for hours. Kimmy isn't quite Solaris, but it has that similarity. Very rare and the sign of a very good score release. Nearing the end now, up next, Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery by Nathan Johnson. And I was actually lucky enough to interview Johnson back in December. Wow, that feels like a long time ago. Released on Christmas Eve. Interesting release date. It's always nice seeing a relatively bigger name composer end up being a pretty nice guy in person as well. Well, virtually at least, not literally in person. What is really cool about this score, at least one of the aspects, is, again, it plays with your expectations. It's an unintentional thematic connection, but like Kimmy, there's technology at the forefront of this film. Both the, the technology of the complex that they're staying in, but also that connects the characters. It surrounds a tech billionaire and his hangers-on. So again, obviously something more electronic heavy would be the place that your mind would first go. And instead, I think maybe the first instrument you hear is a harpsichord. And when I was watching, I was like, oh, okay, they're calling back to Knives Out. Nope. Johnson wanted to do something a bit different, add a little elegance, and bam, harpsichord's in there. The score overall does this really good balancing act of having comedy, having winks to the audience, having a lot of playfulness and whimsy, but also being a mystery. There's a lot of questions left up in the air through the music, constantly searching for clues, trying to make connections between what you've seen, what you've heard, and throughout all of this, very thematically rich orchestral score, out of themes for various characters, themes come back from Knives Out, especially for Benoit Blanc, 
And I didn't notice this, but Johnson told me that there's even an instance of theme swapping for two characters that has a story-related element as well. And above all else, it's a great listen. Now, last up, and a complete 180 from Glass Onion, and admittedly a weird choice, is Colin Stetson's score for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I'll be upfront on this. This score is brutal. Probably as brutal as film music can be. It's, in many ways, through many of the cues, an imagining, a bringing to life of the warpath that Leatherface goes on through this film. Especially later on, when swaths of these millennial and Gen Z influencer types are getting mowed down. It is a violent, vicious, mean, cruel film, and Stetson channels all of that through his music. He described perhaps the most savage of the cues, every last one, as a sludge metal dirge. It's a violent march, horrifying, and Stetson puts in all these weird sounds, including turkey calls. I gotta give Stetson a lot of credit as well for the off-the-wall choices he did in the palette. It sounds like there's a lot of metallic noises in there. I've seen people think that he uses the sound of chainsaws, that there's a lot of metal, but really it's a bass saxophone, Tibetan singing bowls, a Yamaha piano, and a battered viola. And then, of course, some of those weird sounds, turkey calls, hog grunt recordings. It's freaky, and it's powerful, it's wild, it's violent, hyper-violent, and it's gonna be too much for some people. It can feel like a wall of noise, of an auditory sludge, but if you can pick the pieces out and focus on this auditory nuclear assault, oh, it's killer. Now, won't be surprised if some of your favorites didn't make it on here. Chances are they might have been number 11, number 12, number 21. Pretty darn close. Maybe I hated them. But that's the nature of these. So, things don't get snubbed. It's just, 10 scores is not a lot. Especially on a year that, in my view, had a lot of great music. I think my initial list was like 160, 180 scores. And a good chunk of them could have made it on here. A lot of great listening. I hope uh, there were a lot of 2022 scores that you liked. Maybe a few on here that, in hearing me talk about them, will push you to give them another listen. Or maybe not. Maybe you'll think I'm, uh, I'm a little crazy and some of these picks are a little too out there. That's the beauty of music, isn't it? 